The reading is taken from Deuteronomy chapter 5, beginning at verse 22, and can be found on page 185 in the Church Bibles. This is Israel's reaction to the hearing of the Ten Commandments, fear and devotion. These are the commandments the Lord proclaimed in a loud voice to your whole assembly there on the mountain from out of the fire, the cloud and the deep darkness, and he added nothing more. Then he wrote them on two stone tablets and gave them to me. When you heard the voice out of the darkness, while the mountain was ablaze with fire, all the leading men of your tribes and your elders came to me. And you said, The Lord our God has shown us his glory and his majesty, and we have heard his voice from the fire. Today we have seen that a man can live, even if God speaks with him. But now, why should we die? This great fire will consume us, and we will die if we hear the voice of the Lord our God any longer. For what mortal man has ever heard the voice of the living God speaking out of the fire as we have and survived? Go near and listen to all that the Lord our God says. Then tell us whatever the Lord our God tells you. We will listen and obey. The Lord heard you when you spoke to me, and the Lord said to me, I have heard what this people said to you. Everything they said was good. Oh, that their hearts would be inclined to fear me and keep all my commands always, so that it might go well with them and their children forever. Go, tell them to return to their tents, but you stay here with me so that I may give you all the commands, decrees and laws that you are to teach them to follow in the land I am giving them to possess. So be careful to do what the Lord your God has commanded you. Do not turn aside to the right or to the left. Walk in all the way that the Lord your God has commanded you, so that you may live and prosper and prolong your days in the land that you will possess. These are the commands, decrees and laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess, so that you, your children, and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping all his decrees and commands that I give you, and so that you may enjoy long life. Hear, O Israel, and be careful to obey so that, so that it may go well with you and that you may increase greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, the God of your fathers, promised you. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. 
write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. When the Lord your God brings you into the land he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, to give you a land with large flourishing cities you did not build, houses filled with all kinds of good things you did not provide, wells you did not dig, and vineyards and olive groves you did not plant. Then, when you eat and are satisfied, be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Fear the Lord your God, serve him only, and take your oaths in his name. Do not follow other gods, the gods of the peoples around you. For the Lord your God, who is among you, is a jealous God, and his anger will burn against you, and he will destroy you from the face of the land. Do not test the Lord your God, as you did at Massa. Be sure to keep the commands of the Lord your God and the stipulations and decrees he has given you. Do what is right and good in the Lord's sight, so that it may go well with you, and you may go in and take over the good land that the Lord promised on oath to your forefathers, thrusting out all your enemies before you, as the Lord said. In the future, when your son asks you, what is the meaning of the stipulations, decrees and laws the Lord our God has commanded you? Tell him, we were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Before our eyes, the Lord sent miraculous signs and wonders, great and terrible, upon Egypt and Pharaoh and his whole household. But he brought us out from there to bring us in and give us this land that he promised on oath to our forefathers. The Lord commanded us to obey all these decrees and to fear the Lord our God, so that we might always prosper and be kept alive as is the case today. And if we are careful to obey all this law before the Lord our God, as he commanded us, that will be our righteousness. This is the word of the Lord. Well, this is Moses' second sermon, and um, it covers the end of chapter 4 to the very end of chapter 26. We're going to take four sermons to cover his one, but we're only, we're, today we're focusing on chapters 5, 6, and 7. Now, it's the last week of Moses' life. He is on the plains of Moab. They are looking across the Jordan, and 10 miles away they can see one of the oldest cities in the world, the oasis town of Jericho. And they are poised to cross the river and to capture the land, which had been promised to them 700 years before by God. It is now about to be fulfilled, evidence that God keeps his promises. Now, the sermon is really a pet talk to the assembled gathering. They are a new generation and he is worried that they will forget two things. That they will forget the great acts that God had done in Egypt in order to liberate the uh, Israelites. And he is also concerned that this new generation will forget the good that God has promised them as a people 
if they kept his laws and did things God's way, as he'd spelt out through Moses 40 years before on Mount Sinai, which in Deuteronomy, for some reason, is called Mount Horeb. So, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, the relationship between the Lord God and his people is expressed in the form of a suzerainty treaty. Now, a treaty like that was common in the ancient Near East up until about 1200 BC. And the more powerful party to the treaty is called the suzerain, and the weaker party is called the vassal. The suzerain would protect the vassal in return for tribute, taxes and obedience. Now this feature of international ancient Near Eastern diplomacy in that period of 2000 BC to 1200 BC was used to express this relationship between God and his people. In the Old Testament it is called a covenant. And chapter 5 begins with here. All the most important bits of Deuteronomy always begin with here or listen and then learn and then be sure to follow them. Now Moses then reminds them of, their, of the origins of the covenant 40 years ago because many of them hadn't been born then and those who were alive at Mount Sinai were probably children and now they've grown up. Now this isn't an irrelevant historical event. It had contemporary and future significance for them and for us. The Lord God had chosen a people, starting back 2000 BC with Abraham and Sarah, and then through the patriarchs Isaac and Jacob, and down through Moses. He'd chosen them, he had made promises to them that through them, and especially through a future descendant, Jesus, that he would open up a way that all human beings could enter an everlasting relationship with the Lord God. And those listening were part of God's grand plan, just as we are today. He reminds them that at Horeb, literally, a covenant treaty was cut. The deal was concluded by the slaughter of animals and a celebratory meal. He recalls the fact that the people, um, their reaction at Horeb was fear. Verse 5, they were afraid, and no doubt we would be too. If we saw a great ball of fire with seemingly no explanation as to its fuel, and we heard a voice coming out of it from nowhere, we would be similarly dead scared. In fact, they were literally dead scared. They say 525, the great fire will consume us and we will die if we hear the voice of the Lord our God any longer. For what mortal man has ever heard the voice of the living God speaking out of fire as we have and survived? So seeing that Moses, by the grace of God, had survived, they wanted him to be their mediator between them and God. And God was pleased with that respectful response, and Moses served as a mediator between God and man. Now God's desire, 529, was that their hearts would be inclined to fear me and keep all my commands so that it might go well with them and their children forever. 
5.32, be careful. Do not turn aside to the right or to the left. Walk in all the way that the Lord your God has commanded you, so that you may live and prosper and prolong your days in the land that you will possess. So what we have here is that God, out of his love, has chosen them. And he will give them a land which, if they were fighting on their own, they'd have no heart, no, no hope of uh, being able to conquer. It is the most fertile land in the Middle East. And out of gratitude, they were expected to respond by living lives which through these commands reflects the character of God himself. So God acts in grace and generosity and the people respond out of gratitude by obedience. And love between God and his people will be cultivated. Of course, if they reject the deal, which is a possibility, they will discover that life without God is terminal. Well, let's take a look at these commandments, beginning in verse 6. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. This, in terms of the suzerainty treaty, is the historical prologue. We have here not a God of speculation or philosophy, this is a God who has taken the initiative and has interacted most spectacularly in history with them. And we see a pattern, a pattern of the people's disobedience, their punishment, God's gracious rescue and provision. And it is repeated throughout the Old Testament. It started with Adam then to Noah, then Abraham and Joseph and Moses and in the future the next step through Joshua until it is culminated in Jesus. Though often repeated in our own lives, sadly, because like them, we don't respect God enough. We don't take him seriously enough. We think we can walk to the left and to the right and not in his ways and still be okay. So the commandments then. Number one, you shall have no other gods before me. Now the people of the ancient Near East, as we do, and as the Greeks and the Romans did in New Testament times, they knew in the world that there was good and evil. It is obvious to see. So they tried to provide an explanation. And so they thought of a panoply of gods. The gods are fighting amongst themselves. That's why we have good and evil in the world. The bad gods are fighting the good gods. But no one god is in control. Hardly reassuring. The real god, though, the one who reveals himself rather than, in, than is invented by us, the good god, though, is good. In fact, he is solely good. But he permits a certain amount of evil, which is self-generated by us, because he will one day put an end to it. He is in control. He is sovereign. And he is a saviour, because he can rescue us from the fact that we've got ourselves on the wrong side of him. And we see that in Noah, from the flood, in Israel, from Egypt, 
And as we now know that everyone who turns to the Lord in repentance and faith to appropriate the saving benefits of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross and validated through his resurrection. Do that and we too enjoy the benefits of the Saviour's rescue. No other supposed God saves by grace alone. Our God saves through self-substitution to satisfy his justice and to effectively remove our sins, which would otherwise be a barrier to our relationship. Number two, you shall not make yourself an idol. You shall not create it. You should not bow down and worship it. As the writer of Ecclesiastes observes, God has put eternity in the hearts of men. So we have a God-shaped vacuum. So when we, are, when we succumb to the temptation to move away from God's blueprint for living, we still have that vacuum. And it is a nagging vacuum. And so we make idols to fill it. Idols help us further squeeze God out of our lives. And we, of course, create these idols to legitimise what we want to do in place of what God wants us to do. So we create, for example, religions which, if we followed, give us a false self-righteous buzz. Or they permit us to do almost anything because they are so vague and are morally undemanding. Of course, we see the adverse effects through the generations where one set of parents goes seriously adrift. Number three, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Well, using the name of Jesus or of God as an expletive would come under this prohibition because it disrespects him. But so would letting it be known that we are followers of Christ and yet our lives do not conform to Christ's life and his way of living. And so we are then a discredit to Christ. Our association with him is not to his benefit. As Paul wrote to Titus, they claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. Pontificating about God and what he will and won't do is above our pay grade, unless it's already revealed in Scripture. And that too can mean we can misuse the name of the Lord. For example, predicting when the end of the world is going to come. People have tried doing that in the past. I think they've all given up now for the simple reason that everybody has been wrong it's not a very good apologetic for Christianity to claim God is going to do something and then he doesn't. Or, for example, when faced with a friend or family member who has just received a terminal diagnosis from a consultant after a thorough examination, a series of tests and scans, some of which may have been repeated for double-checking, some Christian gets it into their head that God's told them independently that this person isn't going to die. But then they do die. 
Now, I don't, I don't know whether people go in for such things today, but they certainly did back in the 80s and 90s. One of my godchildren grew up in a church where people, you know, I suppose permitted, allowed to say such things to somebody, you know, terminally ill, that you're not going to die. Well, of course, if um, that person does die, what do people conclude? Well, I know that my godson, who's now 40, that none, neither he nor his five siblings are practising Christians because they have heard that God is going to do something and he hasn't. So when they hear from the Bible that he has offered to save them from their sins, they don't believe it. So it's important to say only what is clearly stated in the Bible. Sure, we are to pray for people who are really sick and God is with them and God is alongside them and if they're a believer, they will have a fantastic destiny in heaven. They may live longer than expected. They may even get better. Doctors are not infallible. But we need to be very wise and not claim for ourselves more than we are given to know. Number four, remember to keep the Sabbath distinct or holy. The Sabbath was a 24-hour period from sunset Friday to sunset Saturday. Now in Deuteronomy, the reason for celebrating it is to remember the exodus from Egypt. But in Exodus 28, the reason given was that God rested on the seventh day after he spent six days creating the universe and then entered into his eternal rest. So, they're not in contradiction, they're both true. So what are we supposed to do? Well, we are supposed to enter into God's eternal rest through Jesus now and continue in it. That's what the book of Hebrews is largely about. We, like the early Christians, are also meant to remember the great saving act of God, which was the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross for our sins. And Christians do that on a Sunday, the day of the resurrection, the first day of the week. When Jesus rose, it was the beginning of a new age, the first day of a new age. And we do that today as we remember his death and his benefits for us. Now the Romans worked on a 10-day week calendar, 10 days in a week. So the first Christians, in order to worship on a Sunday, had to get up very early and go and worship before work or to worship after work. Now, as we know from one poor guy, he was so tired after work, he fell out the window. So the Sabbath, to remember the Exodus, was part of the ceremonial law of the Old Testament. It was designed to educate the people of God prior to the arrival of Jesus, who would be the perfect solution to the problem that they were having explained to them through the ceremonial system. And he fulfilled the law. So the Old Testament ceremonial laws are for us illustrative of what Christ needed to do to achieve salvation. They are no longer, so we are no longer required to follow them. They were temporary. 
Now, of course, for social and economic reasons, having the same day off each week is a fantastic benefit, but I'm not sure it's a binding command now in Scripture. Number five, honour your father and your mother so that it may go well with you. The great advantage of age, as I'm experiencing, is that uh, you've seen things. You've seen things come and go. You have seen that actions have consequences. And in the process, you have gained wisdom. Now, if the younger generation were smart, in which case they'd probably be different from when we were young, if the younger generation were smart, they would do well to tap into that free availability of wisdom, which many of you represent. And that would avoid them making the mistakes that you probably met. The cost, for example, of family fracture is reported to be as much as £50 billion a year, according to the Relationship Foundation. That is nearly £2,000 per year per taxpayer. The tide will turn, if for no other reason than that we can't financially afford folly and selfishness. In the Old Testament, parents teach children, as Neil McGregor, former director of the British Museum, points out when he looks at objects and explains something of their religious significance. He sees, I don't know if he's a believer at all, he sees the value of religion as a narrative to provide an understanding of life, its meaning and its purpose. Number six, do no murder. The God of the Bible values human life because human beings, unique in his whole creation, are made in his image. They are like him. So since the days of Noah, the death penalty has been permitted. Genesis 9, 6. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made man. Now that verse is completely misunderstood by the Jehovah's Witnesses to refer to blood transfusion and claiming that it is not permissible. It's so obviously not about that that I leave you to make your own conclusions. But it is because human life is so valued by God that he says the just punishment for deliberate murder would be to forfeit your life if you were the perpetrator. Justice is life for life. Now in our fallen world, and with our 40 judicial systems, we may choose to commute the penalty to lengthy incarnation because of such uncertainties. But the principle still stands. And today can also be applied to the beginning and the end of life. So abortion is the denial of the right to continue to live. And euthanasia, the premature ending of human life, is also what we shouldn't do. We must permit those who have been created the right to live their lives. And while we do not need to strive officiously to keep someone alive, 
when they have had, say, a massive stroke. Instead, we let nature take its course and they may die in the next few hours or day. We don't prematurely bump them off, even if they wanted us to, because their decision has wider consequences. There is too much ignorance and mixed motives around to make sound judgments. And as in the Netherlands, voluntary euthanasia, which is permitted by law there, has expanded illegally to include involuntary euthanasia, being bumped off without consent. Number seven, you shall not commit adultery. A moment of pleasure and a lifetime of guilt is how one commentator describes adultery. God is a God of his word. What he promises, he will deliver, and he wants us to be people of our word. Did you notice a couple of weeks ago that when the Israelites were moving up from the Gulf of Aqaba and they were aiming to head up to approach the uh, crossing of the Jordan above the Dead Sea and to go towards Jericho, that they didn't go straight up through the obvious route, through the land of Edom and Moab. Now, why was that? Well, God told them to go round the long way. They were not to enter the land and conquer it. Why? Because centuries before, God had made promises to the descendants of Esau in the case of Edom and the descendants of Lot in the case of Moab. God had promised them that, that those areas would be the land, the home for their people. And God does not break his promises. Forsaking all others as long as you both shall live, as the Church of England marriage service expresses the outworking of this seventh commandment. Do not steal. Honesty is vital to relationships. The advantage of marrying a Christian or doing business with a Christian is that you know that there is a third party involved in your otherwise bilateral relationships. And like you, that other party has to give an account of their life to the third party, who is God. So they are more likely to keep their word. You see, you need honesty or you can't have the benefits of trade. Trade brings advantages in terms of economies of labour and of scale, etc. So you sell your labour through, good, through goods and services which you produce and you get remunerated so that you can buy, for example, a chair or a computer from someone who can produce such things not only better but more cheaply than <laughs> you could. It is a win-win situation for everyone. Take away honesty and we would all be the poorer. Proverbs 16.11, honest scales and balances are from the Lord. You don't do business with people who you suspect will diddle you. Number nine, do not lie or bear false witness. Fake news, spin, it's everywhere. Politicians are economical with the truth, statistics are massaged, signatures and dates are adjusted, expenses are inflated, work experience is padded, and then there's gossip, which has been defined as when you hear something you like 
about someone you don't. Well, let's take to heed Proverbs 26, verse 20. Without wood, a fire goes out. Without gossip, a quarrel dies down. Of course, you don't have to answer questions. Um, as, you'll have, as, as you know, um, our youngest, Lydia, got engaged recently. And a week before he asked her, he asked me. Not that I think, actually, when I asked about the ring, which was currently being kind of made, obviously, um, he thought I was going to answer positively. Uh, anyway, he asked me whether he could marry Lydia, and he wanted to ask her a week later. So, I'm the possessor of a bit of information, you know? Oh, yes. I thought I'd keep that, because I thought it was a joyful outcome a week later. But my wife is quite shrewd. And she looked at me in the middle of the week, and she said, do you know something I don't know? <laughs> to which I replied, I know lots of things, dear, that you don't know, and smiled innocently and got away with it. <laughs> Number 10, covetousness. You shall not covet. Rockefeller, who was the founder of Standard Oil, and at that time the uh, richest man in the world, was once asked, how much money does it take for a person to be really satisfied? And his reply said it all. Just a little bit more than he has. Avoid, as much as possible, borrowing and then buying. Apart from property and perhaps one or two necessities, save and then spend. It is cheaper and you will be more content. Of course, covetousness, which is, of course starts in your head, can actually spread to just about all the other moral commandments. King David is the most familiar. He was sitting on his rooftop in Jerusalem and he looked down at Bathsheba, a married woman who was sunbathing. And this led to adultery. And when she was pregnant, he had to lie to uh, enable Uriah, her husband, to basically be killed by leading his troops. And then his troops were withdrawn and he was exposed fatally to the enemy. So what started with coveting led to adultery, which led to lying, which then ended in murder. Now these old laws of life from 3,300 years ago, they're not so outdated today, are they? Of course, these moral laws were not actually unique to Israel. I mean, obviously the first few were, but the remaining sort of uh, five or six were not. You'd find them in uh, the Code of Hammurabi, for example. Hammurabi was the king of Babylon in 1500 BC, and they include prohibitions on murder, adultery, stealing, and false witness. Now, this shouldn't surprise us. It's not that the Israelites have nicked them off of them, because you remember in Romans, Paul says God has written his law on the hearts of everyone. It's the way we're wired up. It is a product of God's common grace and his general revelation. Now, there are differences between the laws of Israel and Hammurabi's code and those of the other countries in the ancient Near East. For example, 
in the ancient Near East, many more crimes will suffer the death penalty than Israelite law. In uh, Hammurabi's code, women and slaves are treated as property. In the Old Testament, they are treated as people. In Hammurabi's code, there are class distinctions. There are the elite and there are the common people, with different law applying depending on your class. In the Old Testament, there is no such thing as class. The same law applies to everyone. These laws were not given because God was a killjoy. He gave them, 533, that it may go well with you, that you might live and prosper. And the people realised um, God has been loving and gracious in both their liberation from slavery and for their provision of the fertile promised land. And they, in response, should follow his way and in doing so, they will become more compatible with him because these laws reflect his character. But law and love go together. 6.4 Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. These commandments which I give you this day are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them at home and on journeys. And then the next bit the Jews took literally. They, um, they cut up little strips of commandment, wrapped them up, put them in a little black box, which they then tied around their head, and which they did that every day when they recited verses 4 and 5. And some of them, the more orthodox, still do that today. Now that literalistic application can miss the point. It's not the outward observance of religious ritual that gets to the heart of the matter. What is being demanded here is loving the Lord your God, him being the sole object of your worship, allegiance and affection. The extent of man's love for God was to be total, heart, soul, strength. Heart in the Old Testament refers to the mind and the will. It is intellectual and volitional. The soul is more difficult to define in the Old Testament, but it seems to refer to the source of life, to vitality. So heart, soul and strength means to love God with all that you've got. As time went on without a change of heart, they realised that it was an impossible call for them. Jeremiah 31, 31 flags that up and promises what is needed. With the coming of Jesus, that inner change is now possible. And the New Testament test of a person's love for Jesus is John 14, 21. Obedience to his commands. Obeying his commands matters, uh, makes us more like him and our love for him grows. Love follows gratitude and devotion and is expressed in loyalty. And in chapter 6, 10 to 25, there is a great stress on remembering. Negatively, 6.12, be careful that you don't forget what you once were and all that God has done for you. And positively, in 20 to 25, teach the kids 
pass on the drama of salvation, creation, the fall, redemption and recreation, so that they learn and benefit and have a framework for understanding God and his world and how to live in it. And if they respect the Lord and remember his goodness to them, love him and obey him, in response, then all will go well. However, if they develop a split allegiance and a different lifestyle, then they will incur the Lord's discipline. Chapter 7 is about the conquest of Canaan, and this is literally a military campaign. And uh, it severity I attempted to explain and justify two weeks ago. But the benefit of familiarising ourselves with this literal conquest is that it helps us in our internal battle with temptation. The temptation to depart from our allegiance to the Lord and to live contrary to his ways. They were literally told to destroy the rival religious cults, their temples and shrines and altars, because them remaining in existence would draw people away from allegiance to the Lord God. They were not allowed to enter into treaties or alliances with the people. They were not to intermarry, because otherwise they would be led astray, 7, 3 and 4. For they will turn you away from following me to serve other gods, and the true God will then turn against you with catastrophic consequences. They are the Lord's treasured possession, and they are the vehicle to drive forward his plan of salvation, long promised before to Abraham. 7.9 is a promise, 7.10 is a warning. We, as we end, are to apply this to our lives in our battle with temptation that we face. We are not to externalise it and go around smashing everything that uh, tempts us. No, the battle lies within. Whether it's gossip, lust, gambling, addictions, dark sides of our character, the desire to fill emptiness with empty things, we must recognise what would corrupt us. And we do as follows. We first of all avoid it. So don't wander past the place in each town which has my middle name stuck up outside of it if you are tempted to gamble. And certainly don't go in. Secondly, avoid thinking about it. If thoughts arise, Divert your thoughts. Distract yourself. Thirdly, mix with wholesome company. Seek their help if necessary. And four, do as the New Testament suggests. Under Christ, drawing upon the resources of his word and his spirit, we are meant to get a grip of our lives. Under him we are in control. On the one hand, we are told to put to death features of the old life, and to cultivate, like good fruit, features of the new life. And it will go well with us if we do. Amen.